Hello, and welcome to the Shingo Principles Podcast, the podcast for those interested in building a culture of continuous improvement and sustainable organizational excellence. I'm your host, Mary Price, with the Shingo Institute, a program in the John M. Huntsman School of Business at Utah State University. The Shingo Principles Podcast is our way of inviting you to join some of the interesting conversations we have with thought leaders and practitioners around the world experienced in transforming cultures using principles, systems, and tools. I look forward to hearing what you think, and please be sure to subscribe. In this episode of the Shingo Principles podcast, we hear from Bruce Hamilton, Shingo Academy member and president of GBMP, a Shingo licensed affiliate, as he shares his insights on amplifying lean and what the collaboration effect is. While most organizations who aspire to enterprise excellence are thwarted at every turn by constraints, there are leaders who use teamwork to exponentially amplify the continuous improvements of every individual in the organization through what we call the collaboration effect. One perspective is replaced by many and good ideas develop further into incredible ideas. Join Bruce as he discusses how to avoid the traps that inhibit collaboration. Welcome everyone. I'm Mary Price. I'm the Events and Marketing Manager at the Shingo Institute. I'm pleased to have Bruce Hamilton with us here today from GBMP, a Shingo licensed affiliate. Bruce is an expert on lean manufacturing, employee involvement, continuous improvement, and implementing change. He has also contributed to numerous texts and is one of the authors of the Shingo Model Series Continuous Improvement Book. Bruce is also a Shingo examiner and a member of the Shingo Academy. If you haven't had a chance to read the article Bruce wrote today on the topic that we're discussing, I would encourage you to visit our website, shingo.org, click on the media tab and select the blog. You'll find the article there. It's titled, Why Not Collaborate? Check the three insights of organizational excellence. And with that, I'll turn the time over to you, Bruce. Great. Thank you, Mary. Thank you all for for joining in today. I just finished a four-hour Zoom class and in the process lost my voice. So be patient with me or living in Zoom time. So look, as an operating manager for 28 years before I got into the consulting business, which incidentally, I've now been in for 23. It's hard to believe. Uh, But um, I learned how significantly collaboration can amplify the benefits of continuous improvement or lean. Uh, In the next 20 minutes or so, I'd like to share with you a couple personal experiences that highlight what I am referring to as the collaboration effect. Okay, now, um, this may not be exactly what you would think. There's a bit of a paradox here. Um, We're looking for an amplification of the benefits, but I'm going to ask you uh, to think small today. Often we're encouraged to think big, but I'm going to say, no, let's think small. Uh, and why I say this will become apparent, hopefully, through uh, the balance of my uh, presentation today. Let's just start with the idea of collaborate. What does that mean? I mean, it's basically, it's two, two phrases, labor, co-labor, co-labor, work together, work together. That's all it is. Can we work together? seems odd to me that collaboration should be viewed, you know, as an exceptional activity, an aspirational state, rather than an everyday behavior. 
Yet many organizations struggle to work together. They express frustration with working across departmental boundaries and also with a vertical alignment to company goals and purpose. In fact, I think the word collaboration is generally used to describe an organized attempt by unrelated, even competitive parties to work together on a common problem. For example, the NUMI collaboration between GM and Toyota or the International Space Station. Big things, big things. Uh, this type of international collaboration is analogous to the Kaizen event. It's mandated from the top, it's separate from normal activity, and it's even accomplished in spite of the norm, which is not working together. Seems odd, you know, but that's often when we're talking about collaboration, it's this ex exceptional thing and it's a big thing. I'm gonna say, no, let's, let's not think big. Yeah, let's not think big. Um, but collaboration is, you know, it's tough. It's tough because uh, traditional organization and policy impede our abilities to work together. Ellie Goldratt, who was one of the early influences on my work, you know, he's the guy who wrote the goal. He described three different types of constraints to improvement, which I think apply equally well to collaboration. The first was logistical constraints, things like distance, uh, distance between suppliers, distance between floors, things that get in the way, walls, uh, physical things, compartmentalization in departments. Those are functional logistical constraints. Then there are behavioral constraints. These have to do with biases that we have, prejudgments about people, who are thinkers and who are doers. There's the traditional us and them, the turf wars between, uh, between different departments, and even the educational snobbery that goes along with who's smarter than who. Significant constraints to our thinking. And finally, the what he referred to as managerial constraints, which incidentally, he described as 80% of the constraints. So it's a big deal with Ellie Goldratt, and frankly, a big deal with me as well. And these involve things like uh, your typical approval ladders, a sort of autocratic poli policy that makes it very difficult for us to communicate through layers. And even just measures such as local efficiency, you know, local efficiency, which uh, rewards each department for, you know, just kind of figuratively rowing as fast as possible even though um, it may be causing the boat to turn into circles. Well, we'd like to all row at the same rate, but instead uh, we're all encouraged to row as fast as we can. So these kind of things make it hard to work together. We would like to work together, but we struggle. So what do we do about this? How can, what can we do about these uh, constraints that Ellie Goldratt referred to? And I'm, I'm just scratching the surface here in terms of the things that can get in the way of collaboration. So being a longtime proponent of, you know, everybody every day type Kaizen, for me, that's what Kaizen is. It's small changes for the better that come from the experience and common sense of the people who do the work. It's everybody every day. I'd argue also that with collaboration, the path to greater lean amplification lies not only, not only, not, not in the top-down mandated project collaboration, but in enabling individuals to work together in the moment, 
to solve many small problems. This is a better way to understand the meaning of collaboration. You know, large, vague problems cannot be solved, but small, well-defined problems can be. And just as with Kaizen, we learn collaboration in small bits and pieces working together or not working together. To demonstrate, let me share an example from early in my career as a manufacturing manager. I think I was 32 years old and I'd just been promoted to the role of VP of manufacturing, so a fairly new manager in the business. I was walking through my factory one morning and I overheard a heated discussion between, let's call him John M., a product designer, and Ann C., a team lead from our sub-assembly department. Now, both individuals had deep experience in their respective areas, you know, perhaps 25 years each. I mean, they'd been working longer than I had. They were expert at what they did individually. John was waving an assembly drawing. That was his elements of production for the particular part, as they argued. And Anne was holding the parts and the fixture. All of the elements of production were present, man, method, material, and machine. What was missing in this picture was collaboration. If you just follow the assembly drawing, there'd be no problem, John argued. Well, this elicited a response from Anne. What? You think I'm stupid? Why would I call you out here if I thought that were true? Now, this was the general tenor of the discussion. Each party defensively talking at the other. This is a common problem. This is a common situation. It's a small kind of thing which happens every day. Turns out that specialization, which is necessary, often creates these boundaries. We commonly refer to them as silos. And when any party ventures beyond those boundaries, it's viewed as an invasion of turf. So as their argument continued, the resolve of each of them continued and increased. I inserted myself into the discussion. Why don't we observe the assembly process and drawing together, I said. We can get a better perspective on the problem. John and Ann reluctantly agreed. What seemed to me like an obvious opportunity to understand was for each of them possible exposure that one of them would be wrong and lose face. I recall saying something like, oh, hey, aren't we on the same team here? Truth be told, we weren't. But at least we were all in the same space observing the four M's together. According to one of my major influences, Shigeo Shingo, the first step to understanding the problem is to clarify the perspective. And we were stuck in two separate perspectives here, each expert with their own world, and we needed to rationalize these. We needed to, to see them together. We needed to be thinking of this from a multiple perspective. My role was to nudge both parties, persuade them, to take a fresh look at the problem, to go see together and focus on the process. Mr. Shingo made another very important point that was a lesson for me, and that was that my role was to persuade. I couldn't dictate anything here, even though I was the manager. And that's because people have these beliefs. They're very strong in those beliefs. And when we challenge their beliefs, we only cause them to 
hold on to those beliefs more strongly. I was only trying to nudge them a little bit, just to get them to look at things differently. And things changed once we agreed to focus on the process. You know, my role nudging the parties actually was, you know, something that I had studied in a book and I applied it, theory proven through practice. And sure enough, as Mr. Shingo said, uh, this got the ball rolling. A little nudge was all it took. Reflexive name calling and opinions were replaced, took a while, but was replaced by scientific investigation and discovery. Their problem was to figure out why the parts in assembly did not work together. What, what was wrong with this combo, combo problem? And my problem as a manager was to persuade them to collaborate. Notice here, I'm not talking about the International Space Station. I'm talking about a single occurrence between two people. In fact, John and Ann eventually pulled a parts buyer and a tool maker into the investigation. As they got into it, they realized there was more than one problem. And in just two weeks, this informal team uncovered multiple contributing factors involving each of the four M's. So the lesson here is that no single perspective would have been nearly as effective. The errant assembly problem was solved, but more importantly, these collaborative relationships were created through an analysis of one small problem, but working together. One small problem at a time, employees were discovering that the ideas of 10 are better than the experience of one. That quote, I think, is from Hiroyuki Hirano. We were solving a problem by working together and in the process, creating a culture of collaboration. That is what I refer to as the collaboration effect. We're thinking small, but we're amplifying lean. Stephen Covey points out that you can't continuously improve these interdependent systems and processes until you progressively perfect the interdependent interpersonal relationships. There's a human aspect here. And my role as manager, I learned, was to do just that. Perfect those interdependent interpersonal relationships. Like many organizations, we'd learned the problem-solving tools, but now we were learning to collaborate. I'd like to share with you one more story. It involves expanding boundaries to demonstrate the collaboration effect. Concept of expanding boundaries comes from David Kars, favorite philosopher of mine. It's got nothing to do with manufacturing, but it's got everything to do with creating change. Kars liked the term expanding boundaries rather than breaking down barriers because he understood that if we wanted to create a win-win solution, we needed to have the type of game we were all trying to work together to keep the ball in play. If you kind of think of two tennis players who are not playing against each other, you think two beginners sometimes, and all we're trying to do is to keep the ball in play. And this idea was revolutionary for me that what we were doing here with collaboration and continuous improvement was what he called an infinite game. The object was to keep, keep it going. No winners, no losers. The object was to keep it going. And we would do this by expanding boundaries. So my thinking as we went through this process was, yeah, we've made a gain and we should then expand this boundaries into more collaborators. So here's another story. And this is from some years later. We'd been down this journey for a while. And this is a story about an outside salesman, Bob. He was in from the field 
for a sales meeting at the plant. And we asked him to stop by to participate with a problem-solving team assigned to one of his customers. Uh, we'd tried everything, so we thought, to correct a defect in a product that we produced for this customer. And before continuing the story, I should point out that the fact that a field salesperson would even participate in a factory meeting represented a level of collaboration that would never have been likely a few years earlier. You know, that's the collaboration effect that I'm referring to. And it was Bob's participation, just this collaboration, that would ultimately solve the problem I'm going to talk about now. So the product was a temperature sensor with a Teflon coated with Teflon coated lead wires. The lead wires were in turn covered with a protective copper overbraid. Just got to give you a little background here. The defect involved a small nick in the Teflon insulation from one of the wires. And we knew the nick was caused by the stripping operation when we were removing the copper overbraid, but we couldn't find a fix. By the time the meeting with Bob, we made many adjustments to the process. We'd even involved the wire stripper OEM, and he, they advised that, you know, the eccentricity of these wires is going to make it impossible to, to eliminate this defect. None of our experiments were 100% successful. As designed, the sensor would be prone to defects. And we appealed, then we, next we appealed to the customer. We asked uh, for help there, and the request was fielded first by a buyer who quoted, you know, strict strict specifications. We deny this request. The buyer indicated she'd forward the request also to the quality department, who, after reviewing the part specifications, concluded that the design change might compromise the product's quality. In effect, they were saying, you know, you figure it out. We're not going to be participating in this. So here we were kind of back at square one as Bob arrives on the scene. So Bob listened carefully, and at one point he offered this question, why do they need the overbreak? We reiterated the responses we'd received from the customer, but Bob was persistent. He says, I know where this sensor goes on the product, and I don't see why the overbreak is needed. Now, members of our team were kind of surprised. Are you sure, I asked? Bob replied, only one way to find out, road trip. Two weeks later, Bob and I visited the customer together. This was Bob's gamble. It was the, his real place where we could see the problem and hopefully find a solution. So Bob asked for a meeting with the managers of the quality production and purchasing departments at our customer. Meeting was polite, but there was a consensus from all of their managers that the sensor design could not be changed. This reminded me uh, a little bit of my long go meeting in our, my own factory with John M. and Ann C. Siloed thinking, no direct observation, but Bob persisted. Can we go to the floor and see where the sensor is installed? Reluctantly, the production manager agreed to the tour. So on the manufacturing floor, we were able to watch. Dan, an assembler, was snaking the braided sensor wire through a serpentine pad. I commented to him, that assembly looks tricky. Tricky, he responded. It's ridiculous. This braided sensor was used on another product where no snaking was required. And then they, they is one of those red flag words. The minute I hear they, it sounds like, yeah, maybe there's not collaboration. And then they got the bright idea to standardize on both products. It takes me three times as long to assemble it now, and it cramps my fingers. He wasn't finished. And you know what he continued? The product it was originally designed for, we don't even sell that anymore. So Bob, our salesman, seized on this opportunity. He addressed the production manager. You know, we could we could very easily remove that copper braid, which would not only make your job easier, but would significantly reduce the cost of the sensor. Needless to say, 
the customer agreed to the design change. Our salesman, Bob, had expanded the collaboration boundaries to include the customer. And in the process, created a win-win situation. Dave Carson's infinite game, like that game of tennis where both players are working together to keep the ball in play. No winners or losers. Everybody working together. That's the collaboration effect. And here's the results. Through design simplification, well, look, we could have just focused on the defect. We got zero defects. But through design simplification, the defect was eliminated with all these other associated costs of quality. The elimination of copper braid reduced both our labor and material costs and enabled us to reduce the price to the customer and still make a good profit. At the cost, on the customer side, the installation labor was also reduced. And for both our customer and us, the production was simplified. The hassle in the whole process was eliminated. And while it's hard to put up value on hassle reduction, this was also a major outcome. That was a big part of the collaboration effect. So they reminded me that field salespeople can go see in places where most of us don't usually get that opportunity. Let me just summarize. In order to get this big collaboration, this big amplification of lean, I think it's better to think small. The mandated collaborations, I'm not saying that they never have a place, but there are so many small opportunities in the day when we can encourage collaboration in the moment. And that collaboration affects, expands the boundaries and enables a culture of us over us and them or us versus them. Collaborative improvement simply amplifies the impact of every lean tool. And management's role, show that commitment to that collaboration effect. We are not there to solve that problem. We are there to encourage folks to collaborate, to perfect those interdependent interpersonal relationships. And yes, we should be chipping away at all those constraints. But along the way, our support is what really generates the um, collaboration effect. So thank you all for listening in. The notes I've sent out, this of course uh, is a bit self-serving here because our, our conference theme in September is all about the collaboration effect. The small changes, the many small changes that we have that we can make through collaboration and uh, the those interdependent interpersonal relationships that do so. And lastly, I'd like to just let you know that as a supplier to, um, as a registered affiliate of the Shingo Institute, I uh, hope that we'll see you at a couple of our classes. So thank you all. Thank you so much, Bruce. We do have one question. Let me read that to you. They ask, uh, you said, think small and fix small problems. What is your advice on when small problems seem to end up affecting so many other departments and it grows into a larger, more complicated issue? Yeah. So, so uh, when I say use the term small, it's a funny, it's funny word because uh, it's, you know, most problems begin small, but if we let them fester long enough, they will grow into larger, more complicated issues. You know, one of my uh, teachers would like to say that uh, you could solve 95% of every problem with five whys if you got to it soon enough. Uh, but if you leave it alone for a while, it becomes a huge problem. But the idea of small was not so much to wait for that big you know, legislative event, but mainly to recognize these small things as they occur. And here's the deal. It's hard sometimes. We need to get people clued into these things you know, like intermittent, st intermittent stoppages on a machine are one of the biggest problems with productivity with equipment. 
because we don't even measure them. They just kind of go by and we don't see them. Same thing with these small opportunities to collaborate. And as managers, we want to we want to uh, to create that uh, environment where everybody is looking for those small opportunities and and recognizing them not as inconveniences but as real problems. Are there any KBIs that you really like to measure collaboration? Yeah, well, there's one KBI, and, and you'll notice it probably if you read my blog. Um, I key on, I, and I mentioned it in the webinar here as well. A, as an examiner for the for the Shingo Prize, I listen carefully for language. And if I hear us and them, my first question is, uh, or they, I, I ask, who is they? Uh, because that would be a behavior that indicates that apparently we think that people that we work with closely are not part of us. Uh, and so uh, KBIs, and, and it, look, there are instances when I will visit an organization and I never hear anything but us. It's always us. Means that we're all on this, thinking about this uh, together. So there's an example of a, a key behavioral indicator that, um, and it, I would encourage you to go back to your own site and wait for the word they and ask the question, who is they? Thank you, Bruce. There's one yeah. more question. Advice for improving collaboration in the virtual world today. Yeah, so that's an interesting one, Jay. And I, I had thought about including that in this presentation. But look, and this is what, where I land on this. We, we've all been thrust into the virtual world. Uh, honestly, uh, two and a half years ago, I would have said, no, there's no way I'm going to be trying to do this kind of stuff virtually. But then we were forced through necessity uh, to find ways to collaborate. And what I've discovered uh, is that the spirit of collaborate, if we have the spirit of collaboration, and that's really the collabor collaboration effect that I'm talking about, we will find ways in the virtual world to collaborate. If we don't have that spirit, it doesn't matter whether we're in the virtual world or not. You know, it's really um, the, but here's some benefits. Uh, many organizations that we deal with are collaborating in, in for the very first time across geographic regions. They never collaborated before because they only got together once a year, if that. Now they have an opportunity to do this more often. I think that the uh, the advice I would give is that the same uh, the same challenge exists for management and managers not to solve the, their problem to solve our problem to solve is to generate that spirit of collaboration that uh, that says that you know there are many views of a problem many perspectives and in the absence of collaboration what you end up with is one plus one being much less than two. In fact, it could be one, much less than one. Uh, and the case, first case that I gave, it, that would be would have been the case. They were going nowhere. But with collaboration, one plus one can be much greater than two. And uh, so the manager's job is to be focused on that. The challenges, you know, it's, as I said, it's a double-edged sword with this type of communication. We have chances to, to uh, communicate that we never had before, uh, but we also have you know, some challenges. Thank you so much for presenting today. And thanks to our listeners for joining in and for all of your great questions. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you're looking for additional educational opportunities or you would like to learn more about the Shingo model, please visit our website at shingo.org. 
Please remember to subscribe and to tune in to next time.